So, this morning we consider the idea of holiness. Because the five lords of the Philistines are about to offend God's holiness. And we have kind of an abstract conception of that, of holiness. Violate God's holiness, so what? Well, what if some stranger were to, were to come up to you and just stick his hand in your pocket? Or what would happen if he came up and kicked some dirt on you? Or spit in your eye? You would be offended that this person violated your personal space. And so now you have to imagine what would happen if God's personal space was violated. You turn that <clears throat> offense up to about an infinity, how about? So the real difficult thing is that God's own people are as clueless as the Philistines when it comes to offending God. And in reality, everyone is clueless when it comes to offending God. Treating God as common, as profane, is not a good idea. Everyone needs to know the only safe place to be before God. And that's what we're going to look like at over the next couple of chapters here. I'm reading in 1 Samuel chapter 5. It says, Then the Philistines took the ark of God and brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. When the Philistines took the ark of God, they brought it into the house of Dagon and set it by Dagon. And when the people of Ashdod arose early in the morning, there was Dagon, fallen on its face to the earth before the ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and set it in its place again. And when they arose early the next morning, there was Dagon, fallen on its face to the ground before the ark of the Lord. The head of Dagon and both the palms of its hands were broken off on the threshold. Only Dagon's torso was left of it. Therefore, neither the priests of Dagon nor any who come into Dagon's house tread on the threshold of Dagon in Ashdod to this day. So what's happened so far is that the Philistines have taken the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord to one of their cities, Ashdod, as a trophy of victory. And they feel justified in doing this. As far as they know, their god, Dagon, gave them victory over the Israelites and their god. And so they placed the Ark of God in the temple of Dagon as a trophy. Our god is victorious over their God. And it's a reminder that the presence of God is not much of a presence and our God is stronger and better. That's what you would do. So in so doing, the Philistines have offended and violated the holiness of God. And God responds... See, I mention holiness because this is the big issue. In the end of chapter 6, the Israelites are going to ask this question. Who is able to stand before this holy God? And what the Philistines are doing right now are sinning against God's holiness. So again, we come back to this idea of holiness and we can think about it like it's personal space. Everybody's got a personal space. And it's that distance at which a person feels comfortable talking to somebody else. That can vary 
from person to person. If you don't know that person, you're going to give a respectful distance. If you know them, depending on how well you know them, you've got this sort of distance that you feel like you can talk. Now, if you're married to somebody, you can come right up to them and you can put your arm around them. And it's okay. That person has allowed you into their personal space, so you're not offending or violating. But if somebody were to just come off the street and begin to take liberties, you know, you'd say, you can't do that. That's offensive. Now, the higher a person is, the greater the respect that you show. Like if someone were to introduce me to the Queen of England, there's no way that I could say, hey, glad to meet you. Man, they would take me and put me on the floor in a second. There's no way you can violate the Queen's personal dignity and her space unless she gives me that permission, see? But otherwise, it's way inappropriate. Now, take that concept with God, and you turn it up to infinity. And now you're beginning to realize this quality of holiness that belongs to God, because God is not like his creation. He alone is eternal, self-existent, and he alone is responsible for everything that exists. It all came from him. So galaxies, planets, angels, all life, that we know about, all comes from God. So that means he is special to the nth degree that we cannot conceive of. There is no other God. So he is above all, beyond all, and that respect and courtesy becomes fear because that is the utmost respect that is called for with God. That's the proper way to deal with the holy God, utmost respect and fear. Now, the Philistines have offended this personal space, this holiness of God, because they have put the ark of God alongside their God. And there is no other God than God. So they are greatly offending God. That is, making him one of a group of possible gods. Every nation's got their own God. Great. But our God won, and so that makes your God here, and our God here, so it's violating God's holiness. And God responds by profaning Dagon. To profane means to take something that's sacred and make it common, dirty, polluted. And so what he does is he just knocks over Dagon's image in the very temple of Dagon. So the Philistines come in there in the morning, and there's Dagon on his face before the Ark of the Covenant. This is an editorial comment. But they don't get it. They just figure, fell over. Put Dagon back where he belongs but then the next day, when they come in, Dagon is profaned again. And especially 
the head and the hands are broken off and put onto the threshold. Now, the threshold is like a welcome mat in front of your house. You ever tried to clean a welcome mat? You take it, you flop it over something, you start hitting it with a stick. And clouds and clouds and clouds of dust and dirt, you watch the rocks fall out. It's kind of like pig pen in the comic strip Peanuts, because everywhere pig pen goes, he's just got this cloud with him, and he can never be clean. He gets out of the shower, and it's like, all of a sudden, his shoelaces become untied, and the cloud forms, and that's it, pig pen. Well, that's what a welcome mat is, and you can clean it and beat 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 it, and it's just as dirty as when you started. That's because everybody walks on it. It's common. It is profane. And that's what a threshold is. And so what God is saying is that Dagon is profane and unholy. All that he does and all that he is on the threshold, that is profane. Now, the priests respond by saying the threshold is holy because Dagon touched it himself. They don't really mention how he touched it. But then this becomes a pagan custom in a ceremony. Oh, 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 don't, don't step on the threshold. It's holy. Dagon himself touched it. This is how lost the Philistines are. And it's really tragic. Instead of saying, look at my idol, look what it did, just broke, profaned. They take it all the way around and just say, it's a miracle. He touched the threshold. This becomes a pagan custom that even Israel adopts later in their lives. Way ahead, when they're gone into idolatry, they leap over the threshold. And it's a holy pagan concept that comes from this incident right here. But then God continues to hold all the Philistines guilty, and he judges them. So look what it says in verse 6. But the hand of the Lord was heavy on the people of Ashdod, and he ravaged them and struck them with tumors, both Ashdod and its territory. And when the men of Ashdod saw how it was, they said, The ark of the God of Israel must not remain with us, for his hand is harsh toward us and Dagon our God. Therefore they sent and gathered to themselves all the lords of the Philistines and said, What shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? And they answered, Let the ark of the God of Israel be carried away to Gath. So they carried the ark of the God of Israel away. So it was, after they had carried it away, that the hand of the Lord was against the city with a very great destruction. And he struck the men of the city, both small and great, and tumors broke out on them. Therefore they sent the ark of the God to Ekron. And so it was, as the ark of God came to Ekron, that the Ekronites cried out, saying, They have brought the ark of the God of Israel to us to kill us and our people. So they sent and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, Send away the ark of the God of Israel and let it go back to its own place so that it does not kill us and our people. For there was a deadly destruction throughout all the city. The hand of God was very heavy there, and the men who did not die were stricken with the tumors, and the cry of the city went up to heaven. You just have to say it. When Eli the priest knew that they were taking the ark of God into battle, his heart trembled for the ark of God. And then he fell off his chair and died when he heard that the ark of God had been taken. 
And the Israelites are saying the glory of God has departed. They have the ark. But isn't it amazing that God is not helpless? Like he's day gone with hands broken off or anything? I mean, he knows what he's doing. And even though the Philistines are not his people, they don't understand his holiness, he holds them responsible and he has a way of judging them. And here's how he does it. He multiplies the rat population in Ashdod. Now, this doesn't sound destructive. He multiplies the rats. Go multiply, you little rats. Be very, very fruitful and cover the city. But see, what they bring with them is what looks a lot like bubonic plague. And what is plaguey about bubonic it forms these tumors called buboes. And <clears throat> people develop swellings, tumors, and die. It is very infectious. And so God is killing the inhabitants of Ashdod. Well, they say, okay, let's, let's send the Ark of God to another one of our cities. They have five of them. I don't know that I can recite all five cities right now. But from Ashdod, they send it to Gath. Is this a coincidence? They're kind of testing it out right now. And the idea behind it is a pagan idea that gods have their sphere of influences and they're powerful within their sphere. But if you go outside that sphere, it's not their jurisdiction anymore. This was why Balak, king of Moab, had Balaam go to different places around Israel to try to curse them. And Balaam would come back and said, God's not going to curse them. He says, well, let's try it from this place because maybe God doesn't have jurisdiction here and then we can curse them. But what he found out was it didn't matter where Balaam went. God would not permit it from any direction. And that's what they're going to find out here. Because Gath begins to break out in rats and in bubonic plague or something similar. And normal life is completely disrupted. Kind of like our life right now. Only this one is for real with very healthy people dying in great numbers. And so by the time they send the Ark of God to the third Philistine city, Ekron, the Ekronites already get it. Why are you doing this to us? You're trying to kill us, right? They say, you have to take this. And the same thing happens. The rats multiply, and then people start dying of plague. And you know, there's nothing you can say against plague. The only thing you can do is humble yourself before God. And that's what the Philistines are doing in verse 12. And that is, you have a desperate cry of people who are on the floor and humbling themselves before heaven. Now, heaven is where the gods dwell. You may not know which God it is that is oppressing you, but it has to be God, whoever it is. And so everyone is humbling themselves before God, and they're just crying out to that God that's up there that has all the power, and we have nothing to say. And they're saying things like, please have mercy on me. Please don't kill me. Please, please, please. Because it doesn't do to yell at the God who has you by the throat. And there's not a blessed thing you can do. All you can do is give God utmost respect and humility and beg for mercy. So in chapter 6, it says, Now the ark of the Lord was in the country of the Philistines seven months. 
And the Philistines called for the priests and the diviners, saying, what shall we do with the ark of the Lord? Tell us how we should send it to its place. So they said, if you send away the ark of the God of Israel, do not send it empty, but by all means return it to him with a trespass offering. Then you will be healed, and it will be known to you why his hand is not removed from you. Then they said, what is the trespass offering which we shall return to him? They answered, five golden tumors and five golden rats, according to the number of the lords of the Philistines. For the same plague was on all of you and on your lords. Therefore you shall make images of your tumors and images of your rats that ravage the land. And you shall give glory to the God of Israel. Perhaps he will lighten his hand from you, from your gods, and from your land. Why then do you harden your heart as the Egyptians and Pharaoh hardened their hearts? When he did mighty things among them, did they not let the people go that they might depart? Now therefore, make a new cart. Take two milk cows, which have never been yoked, and hitch the cows to the cart and take their calves home, away from them. Then take the ark of the Lord and set it on the cart and put the articles of gold which you are returning to him as a trespass offering in a chest by its side. Then send it away and let it go. And watch. If it goes up to the road to its own territory, to Beth Shemesh, then he has done us this great evil. But if not, then we shall know that it is not his hand that struck us. It happened to us by chance. So imagine seven months of pandemic and great numbers of people dying and the lords of the Philistines basically surrender. They say, okay, we've got to send this thing back. Nobody is thinking, let's hold out. Let's just stiffen our hearts against God. They're saying, okay, let's do this in the right way. Let's stop offending God. How do we get out of this? And the priests and the diviners, they say, don't send it back empty. That would be to say, here's your ark, nothing happened. You can't do that. You have to admit your guilt before God and say, we did this. We profaned and blasphemed you. Because if you send it back and say nothing happened, that is greater profanity against God. So they tell him to do this thing. You make five golden rats and five golden tumors. And that is a symbol to acknowledge your guilt before God. Because what that's saying is, you sent the rats. You sent the plague, and we acknowledge it from your hand, and we are telling you we are guilty. We have profaned your holiness. You are righteous in your judgment. If gold is the metal of divinity... This is saying these rats come from you. These tumors come from you. And so that is giving God glory. You know, whenever you have a conflict between you and God, God is always right and you are always wrong. You're the one out of line. You're the one profaning God's holiness. So how you get right with God is that you give him glory. That's right. And then you begin from that point to be right. And isn't it interesting that they say in verse 5, perhaps... He will lighten his hand. They don't say, 
You know, you put five cents worth of religious works in, you're going to get five cents of results back from God. They say, present yourselves before God and really throw yourself on his mercy because you have no leg to stand on. Perhaps he will accept you. And that is the real question, isn't it? Will he accept you? Is God obligated to accept you? And says, well, they've brought the price of a parking ticket. I suppose I have to let them off the hook. God is not obligated. He doesn't have to receive you. Why should God receive you? So we cannot dictate to God. We exist at his pleasure. And if he is not entreated, there is no one who can save us from his hand. And they say, whatever you do, don't harden your hearts like the Egyptians did. Because God crushed Egypt and he made them let Israel go. Don't go that far. But you also notice they want to make sure this is God and not just some extraordinary coincidence because the rats did not appear with a little tag on them saying, from the God of the Israelites. And the disease was not correctly labeled. Oh, this is an Israelite plague, you know. This stuff just happens, and everybody's going, what is the deal? Now, are these guys acting like prehistoric cavemen, unscientific? They turn out to be rational, thinking, not so ready to sacrifice to the gods. I don't even think these Philistine leaders believe in Dagon. It's useful to control the people who do. And that has always been the re reason why religion is a department of the state to control the people. And that's why Constantine the Great made Christianity a state religion. It was the only one left standing. That's not been a good thing for the Christian church, by the way. It's much better on its own, defenseless and helpless before God, because that's its real strength. It's better to trust in the Lord than to trust in princes. Everybody get that? Slight digression. But these guys are not superstitious, pre-scientific fools. They go, we want to find out if it's really the Lord doing this. So here's the test. Get two milk cows who have calved and therefore are producing milk, but they can only be cows that have never been hitched up before and hitch them to a new cart that's never been used before because you have to give God the best, nothing used. It's got to be first-rate, brand new. Put the ark, put the box with the offerings in it, and just let it go. Now, milk cows are only interested in being milked. Because at a certain point, you know, the udder gets really filled up and they want their calves to either nurse or get milked. That's like number one priority. And having never been hitched, they don't know a thing about working together and pulling a cart. So if they go straight to Beth Shemesh, that's a miracle. They don't know where they're going. They don't know anything about anything. All they want to do is get milked. Why would they leave their calves? See? So if they just sit there 
and don't do anything, you know this is a coincidence. There's nothing behind it. So, verse 10, Then the men did so. They took two milk cows and hitched them to the cart, shut up their calves at home. And they set the ark of the Lord on the cart, and the chest with the gold rats and the images of their tumors. Then the cows headed straight for the road to Beth Shemesh and went along the highway, lowing as they went, and did not turn aside to the right hand or the left. And the lords of the Philistines went after them to the border of Beth Shemesh. Now the people of Beth Shemesh were reaping their wheat harvest in the valley, and they lifted their eyes and saw the ark and rejoiced to see it. Then the cart came into the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh and stood there, a large stone was there. So they split the wood of the cart and offered the cows as a burnt offering to the Lord. The Levites took down the ark of the Lord and the chest that was in it, with, in which were the articles of gold, and put them on the large stone. Then the men of Beth Shemesh offered burnt offerings and made sacrifices the same day to the Lord. So when the five lords of the Philistines had seen it, they returned to Ekron the same day. These are the golden tumors which the Philistines returned as a trespass offering to the Lord, one for Ashdod, one for Gaza, one for Ashkelon, one for Gath, one for Ekron, and the golden rats, according to the number of all the cities of the Philistines belonging to the five lords, both fortified cities and country villages, even as far as the large stone of Abel on which they set the ark of the Lord, which stone remains to this day in the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh? Then he struck the men of Beth Shemesh because they had looked into the ark of the Lord. He struck 50,070 men of the people, and the people lamented because the Lord had struck the people with a great slaughter. And the men of Beth Shemesh said, Who is able to stand before this holy Lord God? And to whom shall it go up from us? So they sent messengers to the inhabitants of Kiriath-Jerim, saying, The Philistines have brought back the ark of the Lord. Come down and take it up with you. Then the men of Kiriath-Jerim came and took the ark of the Lord and brought it into the house of Abinadab on the hill and consecrated Eleazar his son to keep the ark of the Lord. So it was that the ark remained in Kiriath-Jerim for a long time. It was there 20 years, and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. So here's this cart with two milk cows directly going to Beth Shemesh, lowing. Do you know what lowing is? That's mooing. And the translation of that is, I need to be milked. What am I doing? I can't help myself. Stop me, somebody. Where did my calves go? This is not natural. I don't know where I'm going. Stop me, stop me, stop me. But there's nothing they can do about it. They don't even make a wrong turn. They take the highway. Straight. Never been there in their lives. And the people see this cart coming. They go, it's the ark of the Lord. And they're joyful. They rejoice. They take those poor cows and offer them up as a sacrifice. Maybe part of the lowing was, Lord, I think I'm about to become a sacrifice. Well, here I come. And so they take the ark and they put it up on the rock. They put the box with the Philistines offering and they, they make an offering to the Lord and they're worshiping God. And it's just fabulous. 
And you know, the author points to the fact that these golden tumors, these golden rats, were in existence at the time that he wrote this. So you can go to the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh and see that rock. Historical. This happened. But then the Israelites, they profaned the holiness of God. They looked in the box and they saw five golden rats, five golden tumors. That's, that's a little funny. I wonder what's in the ark. But see, they should have known better that you do not, you're not even supposed to look at the ark of God. You know, Moses gave instructions, or God gave Moses instructions that the priests were to go into the holy place and wrap the ark in three layers of cloth so that nobody could see them. And if anybody who wasn't a high priest looked at that ark, they would die. I don't know how anybody has stayed alive to this moment. But these guys in Beth Shemesh go even a step further. Let's see what's inside the ark. And they lift the lid and a bunch of people die. Now you notice the number there in verse 19, 50,070 men of the people. It's a very strange way to write that. There probably weren't 50,000 people in Beth Shemesh. That would be pushing things. Now, I found a very little literal translation of the Bible. This guy is so literal that you can sometimes barely figure out what he's saying. But this guy says that 70 men in total and 50 of them were chief men. That's a little more like. But we do know that it was a great slaughter. And it was for violating the holiness of God. And these men ask a very pertinent question. Who is able to stand before this holy Lord God? And so they send messengers to Kiriath-Jerim, just like the Philistines, and say, you guys take it. They do just like the Philistines. Get rid of it. Because they're learning this tremendous thing that you cannot profane the holiness of God. And if you don't know what you're doing, you're going to get killed. Nobody is safe around God. So then it stays there in the house of Abinadab on the hill for 20 years. Everybody is scared to death of this thing. So here's something to think about. Everybody has to deal with the holiness of God. Israel had to. Israel was God's own people. And the commandment there was to them you be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. But you know, the Philistines had to deal with the holiness of God. They weren't his people. He didn't give them any instructions, but it didn't matter. Because he's still holy, and they're still profaning his holiness, and he is absolutely justified in getting the hand of the Philistines, careful there, out of his pocket, wiping the spit off his face, getting their thumb out of his eye. You're not maintaining a proper distance here. You see, God is not a local God with a little jurisdiction right here, right here in England, but if you go to some other place, well, it doesn't apply. See, God's personal space is even bigger than the universe. Just as much in another galaxy as right here. 
holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of my Almighty. Whether you're right here or on the other side of the world or in China or in North Korea, no one can avoid dealing with God's holiness. And everyone has profaned God's holiness. Everyone has. And so this is a pertinent question. Who is able to stand before the Lord God? He's holy. So we have some directions from the scriptures this morning. And one is, do not put any gods next to the Lord Jesus. He is to be absolute in our lives. Now, what we find is that he is not absolute. There are other pursuits that we have that come into conflict with obeying him. And so there are times when we decide we're going to do, I'm going to do what I want. And I'm not going to do what God wants. Now, it's not that you stop being a person. You can raise a family to the glory of God in holiness. You can work a secular job in holiness to the Lord. You can live your life in holiness to the Lord. But it's also possible to do everything right and still profane the name of God. And the question is, is God the only God? Do you obey him above all others? Well, if you do, then you put another God next to Jesus, just like the Philistines put Dagon next to the Ark of the Lord. And so another thing we do is we acknowledge our guilt. That is, when the Lord makes us aware, you know what, this thing here, this is a God in your life. This is something that you obey over me. When he puts his finger on that, then you say, yes, Lord. You acknowledge your guilt. You don't avoid it like the Philistines avoided it for seven months, wondering, gee, is this the Lord? And they came to the point where they had to accept the possibility. It could be that maybe it's offensive that we take the ark of the God of Israel as a trophy of our victory over him. It could be that he was actually using us to judge his people. It's not because of our superiority. It's because of their sin. And maybe we have violated his holiness. You also don't just send the ark of the Lord back empty and just say, well, I haven't done anything. So what you do then is acknowledge your guilt and then you offer a guilt offering. And you offer the only offering that God will accept, which is you have to trust in Jesus, that he is your guilt offering, that all of your offenses against God fell on him. And the glorious thing is we know in advance that God will accept that guilt offering. We don't have to guess like the Philistines. Are we acceptable? Do you think God will lighten his hand on us? He might. We know that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Not because 
I'm able to make God favorable towards me, but because Jesus did. He is the only guilt offering that is acceptable to God. And trusting in Jesus makes you holy and right with God. And then you humble yourself and cry out to God in heaven. See, this is the proper way to approach the Lord. And we neglect that. That is, imagine coming to the Lord every day in humility, aware of your sins, even looking for sins. And that's kind of at odds with the modern mentality, which is you just kind of bound into God's presence and say, hey, you and me. We're pals. Let's go now. Bless my day. Got to go. Charles Simeon, in the 1700s, was a fellow who actively pursued humility before God, and he would present himself before God every day and present his sins before God, and he would say, labor to get a sense of my unworthiness before God. And in so doing, in seeking the Lord that way, his goal was that God himself would lift him up. And it would be in a right standing in the presence of God because the only thing you can do is trusting Jesus. And in so magnifying his sin, it also greatly enlarged his faith in Jesus as his only offering before God. And therefore, when God lifted him up, it was into a, a worship and a thankfulness and a rejoicing in God that is not manufactured and cranked up and we got a ra ra sis boom ba yay God, but it's real and it's in the heart and it's from an acknowledgement of guilt and a receiving of forgiveness and grace. And Charles Simeon said, you know what, this is the only safe place before God that I know. Everything else is shaky. In fact, when you labor this way to get a sense of your sinfulness before God, it humbles you. This is good. When you forget your sins, you get arrogant. And that leads to sin and profaning the holiness of the Lord. Now, it's not very modern. And maybe psychologists would say, well, this isn't, this isn't good. You need to pump up your self-esteem. But what happens? You forget God. That can't be right. So what would happen if you actively cultivated this before God? And instead of pushing your sins out of your mind, why not deal with them directly? Just like the Philistines had to do. Just like Israel is going to have to do. Everybody has to do this. And it says in James that God is opposed to the proud. He gives grace to the humble. Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up. When he lifts you up, then you know it's the Lord, and it's not you. Saying, well, it's okay. You did your best. You tried your hardest, dear. Put your trust in your best effort and hope that that works. No, if you say, God, I'm not getting up until you get me up, when you finally get up, you realize, okay, I know, I know that God has forgiven me and cleansed me. I know. And then you have that in your heart. 
and you're walking in holiness with God. So, what happens then is that God, when he lifts you up, he draws you close to himself. Did you get that? He's letting you invade his personal space. And it's okay, because that's what a father does to his child. And it's okay. See, now that, that's worth humbling for. So humility is going to bring you into God's presence. That's the safe place. Let's pray. When we think about your holiness and who you are and actually stepping into your presence and seeing your face for the first time, we think what an awesome moment. And yet we dwell in your presence 24 hours a day. And everywhere we go, there you are. So this morning, make us aware of you. And remember, you're not a God just of the valleys, just of the hills, but you are the one and only God. And everywhere we go, you're there. And we pray to live with you. Not to be oblivious or arrogant, but to live with you in an understanding way. And you say, cease striving and know that I am God. So we want to be aware of you. We pray for you to search our hearts and see if there be any wicked way, any other idol, any other obedience that contradicts you and conflicts with you. And we pray, Lord, work in my life. Make me aware of you. We trust in you to do this. We thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.